I graduated high school, I promised myself I would never come back. I would never stroll the linoleum halls, never reminisce in the open-air courtyard, never revisit the service elevator where I lost my virginity. And now, here I am, mopping that very elevator, industrial strength disinfectant removing the souvenirs from the hockey team's romantic conquests. I am a high school janitor. Not just any high school janitor. My high school's janitor. This is an important distinction, one I'm reminded of every time I see my sad, sorry face in the sparkling polished floors. I've already agreed to work the least desirable shifts in order to minimize my contact with former teachers and classmates. I ran into my old gym teacher my first day on the job, and he shook his head when he saw my soiled blue corduroy jumpsuit. Should have shown more hustle, he said, dropping a half-eaten Ligonberry Danish at my feet. On several occasions, I've run into the sister of my ex-girlfriend, who currently serves as the president of the student body. The first time, we had an awkward, fumbling conversation about her sister, who was apparently in the top of her class at Vassar. Feeling obligated to divulge an accomplishment of my own, the only thing that came to mind was the vending machine I fixed earlier in the day. The next time I saw her, she pretended not to notice me, hiding her face behind her own re-election poster. At least in the poster, she was smiling at me. The other janitors are all over the age of 40, east side burnouts relegated to scrubbing west side toilets. During breaks, they gather behind the machine shop to smoke camels and share a case of Miller High Life, but I never join them. I lock the door to the service elevator and eat a solitary sack lunch, washing my greasy hands in a bucket of orange glow wood cleaner. Sometimes, the fumes from the cleaning products produce a nice buzz, almost as good as the cheap pot I smoked here as an upperclassman. Ever since I started paying my own rent, pot is something I've had to do without. Leaving my parents' basement was a necessary exodus, but independence is never won without casualties. Pot is one, and personal hygiene is another. When I finish my shift, my pores secrete a putrid fermentation of rotting garbage and artificial lemons. I try scrubbing off my entire epidermis with bar soap, but I can't rid myself of the ungodly stench. After a few minutes, the shower spits out ice water, and I resign myself to my malodorous fate. I watch the evening news, Letterman, and Conan, and crawl off to sleep on the mildewed mattress sagging against my bedroom floor. The last thing I see before I switch off the light is a framed portrait of my graduating class. Congratulations, class of 2003, it says, in impeccable gold-leafed script. Your future's so bright, you have to wear shades.
Job success is a relative term. For a professional athlete, a team victory might constitute success, but so could stellar individual achievement. For me, a successful day at work has little to do with the number of floors I've swept or the urinals I've scrubbed. It's solely a measure of how much brutal embarrassment I've managed to escape. My daily schedule is meticulously planned to avoid all contact with what I refer to as high-risk groups. These include all former teachers, siblings of my friends, athletes, and popular kids. These are the types of people most likely to ridicule me, taunt me, or otherwise deflate my already flaccid self-esteem. After enduring several weeks of unwanted pleasantries with faculty members and full garbage cans overturned on my head by the football team, I've carved out a safe haven with the awkward bookworms in the library and the goth kids smoking closed cigarettes on the Van High Street rocks. Completely ignored by the lower rungs of the social ladder, I'm able to handle my push broom in peace, sweeping halls and clearing sidewalks in sweet anonymity. Occasionally, I lose track of the time, and when the clanging bell announcing passing time jars me from a lucid dream, I find myself exposed in the open hallway, a wave of Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren surging at me from all sides. At that terrible, crushing moment when the classroom doors unleash their plague, I sometimes grasp at the wall, half hoping that by pressing on a loose brick, a trap door will open and ferry me to safety. In my frenzied, heart-pounding anxiety, the fire alarm looks particularly inviting. The most frustrating aspect of passing periods is the multitude of attractive, doe-eyed teenage girls in plaid skirts and heavy mascara. A lot of them are just a few years younger than me, and my natural instinct is to flirt with them, casually leaning against a door jam and puffing out my chest. Then it occurs to me that I reek of moldering refuse, and nothing I could possibly say would make them want to sleep with me. When they spot me from across the hall, they avert their eyes and spray expensive designer perfume to neutralize my stench. I'm content to work early in the morning or late at night, even if it means being greeted by the crunching of cockroaches beneath my boots as I fumble for a light switch. At least the halls are empty and the classrooms free of antagonists. During the graveyard shift, the slightest sound compels me to hide behind a podium or supporting pillar, as if the work I'm performing is unfit for the eyes of genteel society. Usually it's just a rat, and I resume mopping. Occasionally, despite my best efforts, I'm forced to confront painful reminders of my past. A good example is my recent run-in with my old theater teacher, Ms. Joffrey. Ms. Joffrey is a loquacious ex-hippie whose classroom is outfitted with beanbags instead of desks. She often receives unannounced visits from former students on vacation from college or in between acting jobs, and gladly interrupts her lesson plan so the surprise guests can share their most fascinating stories with the class. On one occasion, I received a work order for the theater room, and when I walked in on a group mime presentation, she heralded my return as if I were her prodigal son. Why, Dean, what a pleasant surprise, she shrieked with the voice of a harpy eagle. 
Everyone, this is Dean, one of my old students. Now, Dean goes to college at... What school do you go to, Dean? Uh, actually, I'm here to fix the space heater, I stammered, timidly displaying my work order, like a counterfeit hall pass. Oh, she sighed, her face drooping with disappointment. Try not to be too loud. We're in the middle of our mime unit. The group mime presentation continued, and I fumbled through my artless labor in pristine, agonizing silence. After a month on the job, I was ordered to fill out a VOE, a Voice of the Employee survey. The survey featured questions such as, do I know what is expected of me at work? And at work, do my opinions seem to count? I was supposed to bubble in a number from 1 to 10, indicating my degree of satisfaction, and add a written explanation of my choice. The first question was, at work, do I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day? I tried thinking of what it is that I do best, and nothing sprang to mind. I'm pretty good at the old Nintendo hockey game Blades of Steel, where you can engage in a boxing match with opposing players, but it's not like I'm a prodigy or anything. I'm also decent at rolling joints, but it's certainly not my crowning achievement. At any rate, I don't get to play Blades of Steel or roll joints at work, so I gave that one a low score. As I contemplated the wording of my written response, I got a call on my walkie-talkie from my supervisor. He told me to report to the nurse's office immediately, but since it was technically my lunch break, I told him to get someone else to do it. A wave of crackly, low-fidelity profanities spewed from the portable radio, and I begrudgingly accepted my assignment. Does my supervisor seem to care about me as a person, said the next question on the survey. I angrily bubbled in a one and stuffed the Scantron form in my pocket. When I arrived at her office, I found the school nurse reading a National Geographic traveler with a surgical mask covering her face. Thank God you're here, she said, her voice muffled by the mask. The vomit's in those two trash bins beside the desk. I looked at the trash bins and discovered they were full to the brim with someone's partially digested school lunch. The smell 
was overwhelming. I dumped both of the bins into my personal mobile garbage can and offered to get the nurse some new trash receptacles. Oh, thank you, sweetheart, she gushed. You're an angel. After a brief run to the janitor's closet, I returned with the fresh trash cans and sprayed a healthy amount of air freshener in the tiny, poorly ventilated office. The label on the can described the scent as autumn mist, which I suppose is accurate if you spend your autumns in a region affected by acid rain. I think you can take the surgical mask off, I said, filling the receptacles with plastic trash liners. The nurse removed the mask, revealing a slightly crooked yet endearing nose and full, luscious lips the color of some tropical flower. She looked to be in her mid-thirties, and while not conventionally beautiful, there was something about her that was very enticing. Also, I hadn't been with a woman in two years. So, I said, trying to make conversation, can ecotourism really save Madagascar? She gave me a confused look. I pointed to the headline on the National Geographic Traveler line at her desk, a red-bellied lemur staring at me inquisitively from the cover. Oh, said the nurse, well, the outlook's not auspicious. We chatted for a while, and I learned her name was Margot, and that she'd been a school nurse for the last eleven years. She had always wanted to travel, but never seemed to find the time or the money, so she lived vicariously through the photojournalism of old National Geographics. She admitted to compulsively lying to old friends and relatives, spinning extravagant tales of her treks across the world, lifted word for word from magazine articles. I noticed a half-filled-out Voice of the Employee survey line on her desk, and I asked her how she scored on it. Well, I would have given each question the lowest score possible, she sighed, but I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. It's not the school's fault I never made it to medical school. She opened her dog-eared travel magazine to an article on Maine canoeists tracing the 1853 route of Henry David Thoreau and read a short excerpt from the story's introduction. Thoreau said that people lead lives of quiet desperation, she recited. That's the quote they should put on inspirational posters and dentist's offices. I tried to think of a clever response, but was rudely interrupted by my supervisor screeching through the radio. Informed the nurse that I had to leave, and she handed me her copy of National Geographic. There you go, sweetheart, she said. Treat yourself to a vacation tonight. I recommend the Spanish island of Mallorca, but I'm sure you'd enjoy Scotland's whiskey trail as well. I thanked her for the kind gesture and wheeled my garbage can down the hallway in a haze of contentment, barely noticing the swarm of backpack-toting adolescents leaping from my path. As I carried my supplies down the steps to the athletic gym, I replayed the conversation with the nurse in my head. Each time, her cotton uniform became tighter and her friendly smile more provocative. I didn't even hear the jeers of the varsity basketball team as they laughed at the sheet of toilet paper stuck to my boot. I pulled out the voice of the employee survey and looked at the last question. It said, is there someone at work who encourages my development? I bubbled in the 10 and underneath wrote Margot in bold capital letters, surrounding the beautiful name with sprawling, stylized hearts pocketed the survey, and began mopping up the used condoms in the service elevator. 
whistling a Cole Porter tune in pure romantic bliss. Every janitor at my school is issued their own mobile trash can, which, over the years, becomes personalized with stickers and decals. You can always discern a janitor's level of seniority by the number of stickers plastered on his personal garbage can. In addition to experience, the decorated receptacles on wheels provide valuable insight into the personalities of their owners. Gus was a student radical in the 60s tear gassed at the Dow riots on the University of Wisconsin campus, and a contributor to the underground magazine Kaleidoscope. His trash can bears the insignias of the Black Panthers, the Grateful Dead, and Country Joe and the Fish. Gus is also responsible for the carved message on the floor buffer that says, This machine kills fascists, an homage to folk singer Woody Guthrie. On the other end of the political spectrum is Eddie, whose garbage bin is decked out in patriotic reds, whites, and blues, with political bumper stickers for conservatives ranging from former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson to Ronald Reagan and both Bushes. An aspiring artist, Eddie used the epoxy paint left over from retouching the lockers to draw a fearsome bald eagle with the slogan, These Colors Don't Run, in bold black letters. As for my garbage can, it's completely undecorated, except for the occasional Chiquita label deposited by a passing student. I've always found it difficult to convey my thoughts artistically, and a trash can on wheels certainly isn't the easiest form of self-expression. It reminds me of the collages we used to do in grade school, where you'd cut out words and images from magazines that defined you as a person. While the other kids made elaborate hodgepodges of colorful verbs and adjectives and their favorite athletes, I merely glued photographs of myself to a poster board and stapled on a copy of my birth certificate. As far as I can see it, my non-existent personality is a byproduct of lacking any interests or passions. I didn't do well in my classes because I didn't care about 19th century English literature or rudimentary physics or the ropes course. 
Many of my peers shared my scholastic apathy, but at least they enjoyed skateboarding or jazz music, some other constructive occupation of their time. All I did was drink and get high, which is fine as a side project, but not as a primary focus. I mean, the Grateful Dead did a lot of acid, but they also made 13 studio albums and toured the continent. No one's gonna buy a tie-dye t-shirt with my name on it anytime soon. My only motivation for showing up to my loathsome job is the prospect of seeing Margot, who always greets me warmly and gives away her back issues of National Geographic Traveler. Anytime my supervisor radios a request to clean the nurse's office, I race to beat out the other janitors, knocking over the occasional student or grade-level principal with my mobile trash can. If a day goes by without any calls, I'll purposely cut myself on broken glass or step on a protruding nail, appearing before Margot in need of antibiotics and a tourniquet. I like Margot because she doesn't care that I'm not actualizing my potential and doesn't mind that I smell like drain cleaner. But while she's dabbing ointments on my lacerations and bandaging my puncture wounds, she weaves epic tales of dog sled racing in the Yukon and backpacking in the Andes Mountains, heroic vignettes taken verbatim from National Geographic. Her storytelling is so vivid, so engrossing, that it's impossible not to share her excitement. When she's finished securing the end of my tourniquet with medical tape, I always wish I had one more abrasion, one more third-degree burn, so the fairy tale travelogues could go on forever. On the last day of school, my supervisor prepped us for a long day of work, counteracting the ubiquitous senior pranks launched by soon-to-be graduates and assorted troublemakers. Utilizing a PowerPoint presentation, he lectured on how best to deal with the various barnyard animals that would likely be unleashed in the hallways. Mice and other rodents should be cornered and covered with trash cans. Greased pigs should be hosed off and subdued with volleyball nets. Dairy cows should be prevented from climbing upstairs since they refuse to climb down and require a crane to remove them from the premises. After slogging through thousands of petrified bagels strewn across the courtyard, I paid Margot a visit to give her some Swiss chocolate in gratitude for her generous medical care. When I entered her office, her normally immaculate quarters were cluttered with cardboard boxes packed with her personal belongings. I asked her about the boxes and she told me she was quitting her job and using her savings to travel to Europe. I can't live on magazines forever, she said. I need to see these things for myself. I asked if she was planning on returning to Madison in the fall, and she said, probably not. The world is too big to stay in one place for too long, she philosophized. I've lived in Madison for 35 years. I feel like I need to make up for lost time. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't imagine another day of work without Margot's infectious smile or wide-eyed storytelling. I accidentally dropped the box of chocolates in my garbage can, and due to the pile of dead mice recently dumped inside, I decided against fishing it out. I stood in the doorway, trembling, my mind racing with impassioned pleas and dramatic speeches, the perfect Hollywood line that would convince her to stay, but I was never clever enough for improvisation, and had never memorized any movie dialogue. The only thing I remembered from romantic films 
is that the leading man always seals the deal with an epic kiss. So I grabbed Margot and pressed my lips against hers, enveloping her in the most cinematic embrace I could muster. When I pulled away, I noticed that the axle grease caked on my skin had smeared all over her face, and I became deeply ashamed and apologized profusely, searching the cardboard boxes for a packet of sanitary wipes. As I rooted through a box of framed pictures and office supplies, she put her hand on my shoulder and stopped me. She knelt beside me, ran her fingers through my oily hair, and kissed me on the lips, oblivious to the taste of axle grease and antibacterial soap. When it was over, I got up and stumbled out the door, a pack of greased pigs tearing past me, chased by two janitors with a volleyball net. I looked out the plexiglass casement windows and spotted a terrified Holstein cow suspended from a crane, slowly being lowered to the ground by firefighters. I wondered if the cow realized he was being saved, only to have cold, metallic jaws clamped on his udders for the rest of his life. At that moment, I was deeply empathetic to his plight. I staggered towards my place of refuge, the service elevator and walked in on the school's star point guard unbuttoning the blouse of the valedictorian. Her skirt was around her ankles, draped by her blue and gold honors tassels. I pushed open the door to the fire escape and fell down the rusty metal stairs, coming to rest against the stoic brick wall facing Ash Street. Once my vision returned, I found myself staring at the freshly spray-painted slogan of a disgruntled senior prankster. High school blows, it said, in bold seven-foot letters, a fitting epitaph to the formative years. As a student, I would have laughed at such an inscription, but as a janitor, my only thought was, that's going to take a lot of paint remover. The bell rang, and a frenetic parade of new graduates rushed down the steps, weekend camping trips and all-night keggers awaiting them. The Holstein cow was being prodded into a paddy wagon, and as the fire marshals padlocked the back of the trailer, the bovine prisoner peered out from the bars, his face a mixture of sorrow and foreboding. He looked directly at me and telepathically transmitted a warning message. Get out, he said. Get out while you still can. I grabbed a can of solvent and started scrubbing the monolithic graffiti, but no matter how hard I tried, it didn't come off. Exhausted, I collapsed to the ground, physically and emotionally broken. The point guard and the valedictorian clambered down the fire escape, arm in arm, and peeled down Regent Street in his Alfa Romeo convertible. Exhaling deeply, I grabbed a mop and headed up the stairs to the service elevator. If only everyone would have safe sex, I muttered, kicking away a greased pig from the fire escape. It sure would save a lot of work for the janitors.
I received a postcard from Margot today, postmarked from Mallorca, a Spanish island in the Mediterranean. Thanks to Margot, I bought a two-year subscription to National Geographic Traveler, and now, with a little imagination, my mundane janitorial chores transform into exotic, jet-setting adventures. The indoor swimming pool becomes the sun-kissed Mediterranean Sea, the classroom doorways 7th century Moorish arches, the cafeteria a Spanish salon, serving serrano ham and grilled squid, the vending machines dispensing vintage Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. And even though I enshroud myself with fantasy, I know that one day my glossy visions will materialize, the promises of magazine photographs will become tangible. Step foot on Mallorca's white sand beaches, wade in the glass cleaner blue waters, and there will be Margot, a strawberry cosmopolitan in each hand, a toast to F. Scott Fitzgerald's orgiastic future. I press the button for the service elevator, and the indicator light flashes yellow. I'm going.